I'm looking so forward to being able to uh, proclaim to you the Word of God. But first of all, we want to look and read together the passage of Scripture that is found in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. Uh, that will be in your um, pew Bibles on pages 763 and 764. We're going to do something different this morning. We are going to, if you have a New International Version, if you use the Pew Bible, we're going to stand together and we often say read together with me. We're going to read this out loud together, okay? So let's stand, please. Uh, make sure you have your glasses on or not, depending on how you see. And we're going to read together verses 1 to 12 of John chapter 14. Let's begin. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Do you not know me, Philip, even after I have been amongst you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. The words I say to you are not just my own. Father, living in me, who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've done doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. We'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be seated. You did very well. I was the guy who stumbled a few times and I've read this passage a number of times. Let's uh, turn to the Lord in a word of prayer, please. Dearest Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we come to you, desire to look at this word that you have allowed us to read. It's in many ways so familiar, but Lord, also it's in some ways a passage that we don't know very well. Guide us this morning, help us, Lord, if we have stirred up or troubled hearts to rest in what this passage has to say. Guide us, we pray. We look forward to how you're going to work. May the words of my mouth, meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our strength 
and our Redeemer. Amen. The atmosphere in the upper room was heavy, tense, sullen, and very unhappy. Many of the disciples did not want to come to Jerusalem as they knew the animosity that waited there for the Master. But he had set his face as a flint to go there, and so they were there. The week had not been a triumphant proclamation of the Messiah or the establishment of the kingdom to their minds. Instead, animosity and hatred of Jesus grew amongst the leaders of Israel. It's almost palpable. You can almost feel the hatred. If we're not careful, someone's going to get killed here. In the room where they had just come, things had gone from bad to worse. There was no servant ready to wash the feet of the 13 disciples, travel-worn men, and Jesus. None of the disciples would ever stoop to doing such a dirty, demeaning job. But the master did. It was embarrassing and shocking to them to see this man who they followed stooping so low to wash their feet. Only the lowliest servant did that. And the evening got worse. The master spoke of one who would betray him. Of us? Of the twelve? No wonder he seemed so preoccupied and even a little bit withdrawn. It could even be that he was at least as troubled as the men in the room were. Questions and accusations flew across the room. Is it I? Is it I? Is one of us? And in their hearts they were saying, is it me? The disciples weren't sure why, but in the middle of all of this, Judas Iscariot got up and left. That, that seemed odd. To make matters worse, Jesus said the most chilling thing. Yes, it had been mentioned before, but now the words seem so definite. He said, my children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. They had been with him, and now they couldn't follow him anymore? They'd given him three years of, his li of their lives, and he's leaving? That can't be. To top it off, when Simon Peter asked Jesus where he was going, the reply was, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you'll follow a little later. When Peter asked why he couldn't follow, he was told that even he would betray Jesus. Now, if Peter would betray Jesus, what was the hope for the rest of them? All this seemed very grim. Very depressing, and the prospects for them all seemed gloomy, if not downright hopeless. They didn't have the heart to really celebrate the Passover at this point at all. Now, that was chapter 13 of John, and that sets the stage for chapter 14 of this book. Out of the despair and the turmoil of the events leading up to this chapter, our Lord says very gently, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
the beginning of one of the most beloved chapters in all of the New Testament, one of the chapters that is used uh, in all kinds of services, including funeral services. Jesus starts by encouraging the men listening to him to not be troubled. And in this passage, Jesus will reveal himself saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. Three intertwined I am's that express both the exclusiveness of who Jesus is and the comfort that comes from exactly who he is. There are times for us when the things that are our foundations, our sure things, suddenly shift. Whether it be the support of friends and family, or the security of a good job, or the love of a spouse or a significant other, what does one do when all of this shifts and no longer seems certain or secure? How does one cope when the news of debilitating illness or impending death stirs your heart like it has never stirred it before? In the gloom, where does one turn? There's only one place to turn, and that's Jesus. Now, as you are all likely aware, Pastor Wes has been leading us through a series of messages taken from the book of John entitled, I Am looking at eight things that Jesus wanted us to know about who he was. We're doing this more than anything else to get to know Jesus so that a deeply personal and rich relationship with Jesus will occur. We're wanting you to understand the I am so that you will build a relationship that is stronger and richer and fuller with the God-man, Jesus Christ. As we will see again today, there's only one place where real change or transformation can occur. So as we begin, I want us all to have the passage that we read together open if we could. If you have closed your Bibles, please turn back to that passage. Uh, John chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. I said 1 to 14 in the materials, but it's only 1 to 12 we're going to look at. We want to see the truths that are written in God's Word for ourselves, and we're going to uh, look at three things that are found across this passage for our benefit. These are the comfort that Christ goes to prepare. Comfort in the only way, the three I am's. And a great comfort, Jesus and the Father are one. So, let's get started. I do want to warn you about one thing before we get started, though. As a boy, I was taught to memorize Scripture. And one of the Scripture passages that I learned was John 14, 1 to 6. We live in the year 2017. I learned them in the 1970s. And the version everybody used was the King James Version. So my mind leaps about, um, especially in the first four to six verses, from uh, modern translations back to those King James times. So if you hear um, funny types of words, it's because my mind has gone back to those days, to the things that are settled in my mind. And if that happens this morning, please forgive me. It's still the Bible, just it's old Bible. Um, just keep that in mind. So we're going to look at the first four verses under the heading, The Comfort That Christ Goes to Prepare. 
As we read the start of the passage, you see that Jesus has diagnosed the problem accurately. For indeed, as chapter 13, verse 21 says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He knew of the upheaval in the room because there was upheaval in his heart. He knew of the turmoil of mind and heart, the muddying of thoughts and the feelings that the men were facing because he was facing struggles as well to even a greater degree as the events at Gethsemane will show us. John 2 verse 25 tells us, Jesus did not need man's testimony about man for he knew what was in man. So he could judge the spiritual and emotional temperature of the room and diagnose the issues at work there. Oh, to have that kind of ability to watch people and to see what's happening and be able to say, I know what they need right now. Jesus could do that. Despondency and gloom, upheaval and upset are appropriate ways to feel in some circumstances. It's not always bad to be negative. Sometimes it's what you face. Sometimes it's what is going on. To find out that the course that you have worked so hard to accomplish at university or college will not get you the degree that you want, but instead is an inferior degree, that's discouraging. To find out that the friend that you had always counted on has flown the coop, as it were, and left you without contact and care in the most difficult times in your life. To think that the one on whom you have counted on the most, whoever that may be, has let you down or even lied to you or even betrayed you is almost more than the mind can handle. It's at this point that we see Jesus step in and take comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled. This is not like some clip of Bob Newhart, the psychiatrist, who for every psychological malady says, here's how you fix it. Stop it! This is not that at all. This is the caring and compassionate Jesus. Jesus makes the statement, he follows it up with two good reasons for no longer being troubled. The first reason for comfort, let not your hearts be troubled, is that there's no difference between believing in God and believing in Jesus himself. For the Jewish disciples, reliance upon Yahweh, the creator God of Israel, was a given. And to this, Jesus indicates that trust and reliance on him is to be given as well. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jews who believe in one God, trust God. Now the disciples are called upon to trust Jesus in the exact same way. If people who had not been with Jesus for three years and seen the works that he'd done and the things that he said and the character that he displayed along with the indications from heaven on a couple of occasions that Jesus is God's son, there was no way that he would be accepted for saying this. It would be blasphemy or the taking to oneself the prerogatives of God. But here it is meant to begin to calm the waters. You've trusted God. Now trust me in the same way. 
in the midst of the turmoil and the emotional struggles. Trust me. Here in that churned up room, the God-man says, trust me. The second reason that we are to get comfort is that Jesus is going away. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus' reason for going away is to prepare for the disciples places in the presence of Yahweh for them and for us to dwell in. He will specifically go to prepare these for them and for us and come back for us when they are ready. Nothing less than the promise of a eternal relationship with God is envisioned here. And Jesus is the means by which we are able to partake. For he will come back and take us to be where he is. Life in the presence of God is being offered here. This is the culmination of the Zoe life that Pastor Wes has been talking about for the last number of weeks. The most important life. That which is uh, the real life of the inner person. The vision that John received on the island of Patmos 60 years after these events talks about the end of time and the culmination of all things that are discussed in kernel here. If you were to take and turn to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you would see something marvelous listed there. You would see the marriage supper of the Lamb. You would see that the, the river of life. You see the trees of life. You see there's be no need for the sun or the moon because the sun is the light. S-O-N in the city of God. And there you'd be able to face to face see God and see his son Jesus and live with them forever. The explicit blessing that Jesus is promising to these troubled men is the fact that the disciples and we who are also Jesus' disciples will be in the presence of and live before the face of God and Jesus the Lamb forever. Do you want to pour oil on the turbulent waters of your heart? Here's how you do it. I have a dwelling place with God that Jesus is making for me. How do I cope with the shaking of my foundations? How do I deal with the hardness of failed plans, of lost loves, of hardening circumstances? I run to the recognition that I have a reward eternal in heaven awaiting me. It's no pie in the sky by and by, but it's a sure and firm hope that I can live by today. The persecuted souls who lived in Eastern Europe and the old Soviet Union spent 50, 60, 70 years facing the threat of communism and its hatred of Christianity. How they survived against the worst that an atheistic regime could throw at them was to have this hope. The slaves of the United States South survived against the worst that an atheistic, that the worst that could be done to a person who was under slavery could face. 
their spirituals related this overarching thought. I have a home beyond the river. I have a mansion bright and fair. I have a home beyond the river. I will dwell with Jesus there. That's the hope. That's the promise that this passage talks about. We have a master, Jesus, whom we can trust and rely upon. Now we have a future that he has guaranteed for us. Our Jesus is to be as trusted as God, and he has prepared for us a dwelling right in the presence of God for all eternity. And that's a sure way to damp down trouble that percolates in our soul. That's the way to comfort. But the passage that we have come to has a center to its message. And that center comes next. But I want to read to you verse 4, first of all. Verse 4 says, You know the way to the place where I am going. At the end of Jesus' promise regarding a home in heaven with God that he is going to prepare for us and to take us back to, he looks at the disciples and he says, You know the place where I am going to. It's a good thing that I don't write scripture because I don't understand exactly why Jesus would say that. Unless it is to do exactly what occurred. These disciples, although they had been with Jesus for years, had no clue. Peter asked in chapter 13, verse 36, Lord, where are you going? But it was to stir up the minds and the voices of men like Thomas that he said this. Thomas, who is cynical and depressive and questioning and pessimistic. You call him the Eeyore of the disciples. No, I don't think it'll ever work out properly. No, I really don't think so at all. Come on, Lord, we have no idea of where you're heading to. At least not anymore. And we have no clue of the way to get there. We thought you were the king of Israel. The Messiah that we've been hoping would lead us to believe that would rule Israel and conquer our foes. We had thought that this week you would march with your followers to the palace and begin your earthly reign. And now that looks impossible. It's almost a cry of, I give up. We have no clue, Lord. No idea what you're doing. And for them, it was true. They still have no clue. The earthly kingdom of their dreams is not fulfilled. But a far better goal is in mind, and it's through Jesus himself. And Jesus answers in this way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you, will, you do know him and have seen him. Excuse me. Contrary to what the world says, or liberal theologians, this passage is not is not an intolerant screed against other religions or a bigoted white person's cry for supremacy or one-upmanship. 
No, it is the comfort in that, that deals with the greatest struggles that humans face. For a place is the only way to find comfort directly before everyone. Now, maybe a story will help you come to grips with what Jesus says here. Now, there will be holes in my story, so try to focus on the story. I know that many of you clever folks will figure ways around what I'm saying, but don't do that. Just follow the story and don't look for the holes. Let's say there's a unique life-saving drug that's in a locked cabinet, which is one of the most secure types of cabinets that have ever been built. The formula for the drug has been lost, except for inside the cabinet. There was in all the world one key and one key holder to access the cabinet. Without this formula, many would die. There is no other cure. Would it be wrong for folks to seek the one key holder to unlock the cabinet that the drug could be synthesized and dispensed? Would it be wrong to think or improper to think that there was only one cure when that was the proven case? Would it be prudent to argue over the merits or the demerits of the cure versus other cures or to demand to see that all of the cures are alike? No, all of those would be foolish. Find the key holder, get the cabinet open, get those drugs into production, and get them to people who need them. That's the only hope. Now, of course, the illustration breaks down. But Jesus, in a bold yet caring statement, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. When I was younger, and maybe this is the problem that people who are not Christians have or some liberals have, I used to think that Jesus was setting his jaw and stealing his body and roaring these words out, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, as I've studied these words over time, and seeing the context of these thoughts, especially chapter 13, I've come to the conclusion that Jesus has added these words as part of his concern to comfort his weary, tense, torn-up followers. Indeed, he was stating the only means possible for comfort, which is why I've entitled this point, Comfort, the Only Way, the Three I Am's. Far from being a point of contention, the Lord wants the frightened men to see clearly that their worries and cares are dealt with and their access to God is assured because they are in the presence of one who isn't like anyone or anything else. The first is I am the way. Every religion seems to teach that there's a code or a way to live in order to do right by that religion. The Muslims have the five pillars. That includes things like giving alms, going um, one time in one's life to Mecca, praying five times to a day, stating the key statement regarding Allah and Muhammad, and fasting at Ramadan. Buddhists have a, a path to reduction of suffering. 
Jews have the keeping of the law, both the Ten Commandments and the rest of what is found in the Torah, 613 commandments, along with the birth of the nation itself. Christians often think they have a list of do's and don'ts too. It's a list of things to do in order to get into a right relationship with God. Some misunderstand the name of early Christians and that's where they are called the way as a recognition of a set of behaviors. Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14 gets misinterpreted sometimes to mean that there's a means to God and His gate is by following a narrow path by works. At the very start of this verse, when the position of these men is so much in doubt and in chaos, Jesus wants them to know that the way to God is not by actions, but a relationship of love and trust, reliance and dependence on Jesus Christ himself. Did you hear that? The way to God is not to be by actions, but by a relationship of love and trust, reliance and dependence on Jesus Christ alone. So unlike any other faith, the access to the best, to God, is in a person. Jesus does not just blaze a trail, commanding others to take the way he takes. He's not a good example only. What would Jesus do is a fine slogan, but is nowhere near what Christianity is. He is the way. Not only is He the background against which we come to God, but He is the Savior, the Lamb of God, the one who speaks truth, that those who are in the graves hear His voice and come out. He mediates God's truth and God's life, and that He is the very way to God, D.A. Carson said, in Himself. So Thomas, to begin with, if you want to go where the dwelling places are, the final destination of hope and blessings rely totally on me, Jesus says. I am the way, and no one else is. Now, if you or I were to say that, that would be not just the beginning of arrogance, but a long ways along the path of arrogance, right? Yeah, you are the way? Boy. Well, it would be, but there's more that he says. The second is, I am the truth. Now, the grammatical construction allows us to take back the I am from the first part of the sentence and put it before the words, the truth. So you can say, I am, great emphasis again, I am the truth. As John began his gospel, he made some very bold comments about the Word, who we know to be Jesus himself. John 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Or verse 18 in chapter 1, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. 
This one who was with God and was God was the creator without whom God made nothing is the expression of the glory of God and is full of grace and truth to do with God. He is in closest relationship with God and he makes God known through his being even while being in flesh. Parts of Colossians chapter 1 point this out. The Son is the image of the invisible God, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So you see, all that there is to know about God, every scintilla of information that we can possibly have as to his nature, character, love, justice, and behavior that men can comprehend is found in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Did you hear that? All that there is to know about God, every scintilla of information that we can possibly have as to his nature, his character, his love, his justice and behavior that people can comprehend is found in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. For poor, pessimistic, cynical Thomas and for the other disciples and for us as well, it is not Jesus going away that is the most spiritual importance but the fact that they have him as the truth about god the total truth about god even as he goes away i have seen god because i have heard and seen and watched the truth of god jesus of nazareth the son of god rvg tasker says the way to god lies in the knowledge of the truth about jesus and in the experience of his life, it is precisely this knowledge of Jesus throughout his incarnate life and supremely in his atoning sacrifice that is bringing God within human's reach. So for us, the comfort comes in that we have an absolute picture of the God we have to deal with because we have seen his son. The word lives out and expresses God fully to us. How will God deal with our failures? What did Jesus do when Peter uh, had denied him three times and met up with Jesus after resurrection? After Peter repented, he forgave him. What did Jesus do for the disciples who felt they were at sea and cut off without his physical presence? If you are to go on further in chapter 14, you'd notice that he sends one who comes alongside to help, the comforter, the paraclete. The Holy Spirit of God is left for the disciples to be comforted and empowered by. The paraclete would interpret the things that are not understood about God. For God, like Jesus, would not leave his people alone. Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation about God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 tells us. He himself narrates God. He is God's gracious self-disclosure says and does exclusively what God gives him to say and do, Don Carson says. You want to know who God is? I'm the truth about God, Jesus says. Anything you want to know, look at, listen to, talk to me. On the old X-Files, Muller and Muller and Scully often said, the truth is out there. No, the truth, the real truth about the most important issue in the universe, who is God, is not out there. 
It is situated in a person. Jesus. I am the truth. Far from being arrogant, it's the only possible answer to the question that most plagues humanity. So if it is true, and the only truth, and you have to express it, right? Then the third is, I am the life. Throughout this series, Pastor West has been talking of the difference between bios or physical life with its needs and drives and the interior foundational spiritual life of the human being, the zoe. So often when the Lord was giving illustrations of the inner life and its vital need for the everlasting nourishment that he could provide, the hearer and the disciples got caught up in physical sustenance. So to illustrate the spiritual need, he feeds the 5,000. And what catches the hearer and the receiver and the disciples? Wow, he made a lot of food. But he's the one who is the nourishment, the one that is to be taken in and feasted on, who satisfies needs forever. He is the water of life that quenches the thirst that the soul has and is not some marvelous way of rigging up the well so that it produces water all the time. That's not the idea. You want to fill the thirsty soul so that it wells up unto eternal life. On and on it would go. Bios needs are, of course, important. It's hard to have a walk with Christ when you're starving to death. That's difficult. But the ultimate need and the ultimate life was the life of the soul, of the inward life of the real person in the need of relationship with God. The Zoe need could only be satisfied by the one of whom John in chapter 1 says, in him was life. In a few weeks, we will once again be brought face to face with the words of Jesus when he proclaimed to grieving Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Did you notice I fell into King James there? I warned you. John later calls Jesus the true, and, the true God in eternal life. 1 John 5.20 The source of the fountainhead, the giver and the sustainer of life that begins now and goes on forever is Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. So because in effect one can say Jesus is the way to God because only he is the truth about God in totality and only he can truly give Zoe life. And as scripture says, life more abundantly. Because he is life. So when Jesus claims that these three great I am's regarding himself, it just naturally follows that he would say the next thing. If he is the way and the truth and the life, then of course no one can come to the Father except through him. How many other ways could be possible if he is the way and the truth and the life? Who else could comfort your soul and take you to God? Nobody else. So when Jesus claims these, 
It has to be true that he's the only way. So dear brothers and sisters, here's a balm for us in the midst of our trials and heartbreak. Here is the settled core and foundation for life when all about is in a tizzy. Here is the comfort that is needed that is needed when the whole edifice of our lives appears to have fallen over. Jesus answers and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I want to take a minute and stop and speak of an issue that is at the crux of what evangelicals believe this passage is about. That is, this passage has been seen to be exclusive and for good reason. It is comforting, but it's also a point that demands decision. It is exactly what the world thinks it is in one way, a point of separation. Christianity is different from every other religion and no religion because of this. Because of this. The Bible teaches that there is but one access point to God, to that God of the universe and the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not to mention uh, the only means of reconciling that God to us. We who are hell-deserving sinners at war against God since the sin of Adam and Eve has set us on that footing. The plaintive call of comfort is Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. If you are to come to God, you must come through Him alone, through Him only. Here's what popular writer and speaker Chuck Swindoll said about this choice. Is your heart troubled? Could it be perhaps that you've chosen to go your own way in life instead of following the way and the truth? And the life? Proverbs 14:12 states, "There's a way that seems right to a man, but the way, but the end is the way of death." Jesus is the new and living way that God has provided for our salvation. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 tells us that. Don't be misled by many who will tell us there are many ways to God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. All other paths are detours that lead to nothing but dead ends. Dead ends. So my challenge to you is, as you think about Jesus as the way and the truth and the life, have you ever seen your need and cried out to God for mercy and asked Him to change your heart so that you would trust that one way to God? That one way in Jesus Christ. Every other way is not a way. It's a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac. I like that word, cul-de-sac. It means the end of the bag. Cul-de-sac. But Jesus is the path. He's the way. So we come to our third point. A great comfort. Jesus and the Father are one. Again, in order to engage the thinking of the disciples, Jesus adds a comment in verse 8, calculated to get someone, in this case it's Philip, stirred to comment. Jesus says, If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well, for from now on you do know him and have seen him. Jesus 
Jesus, the material, materialistic and empirical, I'm sorry, try that again. The materialistic and empirical and sensual Philip responds um, by thinking we have never seen the Father Jesus, the Creator God, Yahweh. Explicitly he says, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Moses and the elders got to see God, Exodus says. We're your followers, let us see God too. Philip, believers in Christ, here's the thing. One of the great comforts of this passage here is that God who is transcendent or way up there or too holy for us to behold or much more than we could possibly handle is known in a man whom the twelve had spent three years with. A man just like us, of course, without sin. Verses 9 to 11 state, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been amongst you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. He says to the man, Fellas, the Father and I are so intertwined that I don't speak a word or do an action without his authority. My work is his work, and I do whatever he expects, even though I am my own person. You watched the blind be healed and the dead raised. You saw the lame walk and the multitudes fed. You saw the storm stilled and every other thing that I did. These expressly testify to the fact that God was working and I was working. Men, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Brothers and sisters, if we have seen Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture, we have seen the Father. It's really the other end of verse number six. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one seeks the Father except they find me. We're so interrelated that the approach to one is the approach to the other. We've come full circle now. Comfort in this most exclusive of passages comes in the fact that unlike anywhere else in any other religion in the world, the human founder and the heavenly object of our faith are intertwined. Son in Father and Father in Son. Do you know what this means? There is a close and gracious answer to the deepest needs of my heart. And that answer is a growing relationship with Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. And that brings us always, always to the Father. The Father is spoken of in James as the giver of every good and perfect gift. The Father is the one that Jesus himself encourages us to pray to. The words of the model prayer in Matthew 6 talk about that. We love God because of the work of his Son. We rest in God because we have his glory, the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth. We have comfort because Christ 
is going away to prepare a place for us. We have comfort. The only comfort we have is in the three I am's. We have comfort in the fact that God the Son and God the Father are one. When we are troubled and life is torn up, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, except by me. Chuck Swindoll says this in closing, for our troubled hearts to derive any practical benefit from Jesus' names, the way, the truth, and the life, we must take it and taste it. Let its various elements be digested into our beliefs and into the bloodstream of our inner thoughts. Once there, the way will relieve our fear of being or getting lost because in him we find purpose and direction and assurance for the future. The truth will remove our need to anxiously search for answers to life because in him we have the wisdom of God and the life will reinforce our hope for a home in heaven because he has gone to prepare a place for us. My prayer is that our hearts will be comforted by this effort of our Lord Jesus Christ to calm the troubled souls of his followers. May the words spill into our souls like anointing oil, settling the issues that so rile us up and stir us, placing our hope in Jesus Christ alone, for he is the way to God for time and for eternity. Let's pray.